Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Kimberly Mack. Kimberly is Associate Professor of African-American Literature and Culture at the University of Toledo. Her book, Living Colors, Time's Up, which is part of the Bloomsbury 33 and a Third book series, it says on her bio forthcoming in May 2023, but we're actually in June. And the book is here, and it is going to be the primary topic of conversation um, for this episode of The Deep Dive. And I'm really, really happy and honored to welcome Kimberly Mack to The Deep Dive. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me. I, I was telling you as we were recording, I was we were talking a little bit before I hit the record button that I feel that this conversation is, you know, 30 years in the making because I am a unabashed fan of Living Color and I am an incredible fan of this particular album, which is their second album, Time's Up, their um, first album being Vivid. And just for personal commentary, just to frame it a little bit for you and I, as we begin this conversation, I, I cite um, 1988 as one of the most important years, if not the most important year of my musical life. As someone who's a deep fan of music, all types of music, um, I DJ, I do a lot of stuff with music. It's like a driving, organizing force in my life. And 1988 was important to me because I was in high school, I was at I went to Brooklyn Tech, so that's another reason, you know. Vernon Reed also is a tech alum, um, so shout out to all the Brooklyn Tech alums out there. And though I did not know that at the time, so I actually found that out years after I graduated that he also went to Brooklyn Tech. But back to 1988, three albums came out in 1988 that shaped my life. Vivid was one of them. It was the first time in in my teenage years that I saw Black dudes, not Jimi Hendrix, playing rock music, which I was a fan of, right? So I saw like four young dudes, you know, just killing it in a way that was like earth shattering to me at that time. You know, 14, 15 year old me, Tracy Chapman, <laughs> um, came out in 1988. First time I saw a a black chick doing folk rock, whatever you want to call what Tracy Chapman was doing, but that album was and remains incredible. And obviously Public Enemies, well, maybe not obviously, but Public Enemies, it takes a nation of millions to hold us back, which, you know, when folks um, say like, what radicalized you, right? <laughs> like Public Enemies, it takes a nation of millions completely radicalized me. It sent me on a, on a mission to read different books, to do different research, to watch different things. Like it, it literally changed my life. And I think it, all of those three things and probably a bunch of other cultural references got me to Howard where I went to school. And, and we'll talk a little bit about that because Time's Up coincides with my arrival on, on Howard's campus. So I've talked too much. I want to give you an opportunity to share with all my listeners, why you decided to take on this project of writing about not just living color, but Time's Up specifically. 
Yeah, thank you. Uh, so, well, that's really cool to hear all that stuff about you. I hope we talk more about that. Yeah, so time's up. Huh, let's see. So I I love Vivid. You know, I had Vivid, Cult of Personality. Great song, great rock song. Obviously an amazing riff that you hear it now. Every time I hear it, I get chills still. I saw them on Showtime at the Apollo with my mom. It meant a lot to me. You know, I was a little girl growing up in Brooklyn, loving rock and um, feeling pretty alone in that space. And so, yeah, seeing them do that, these four young Black men up there rocking hard really meant a lot to me. But it really was Time's Up (laughs) that I think completely sold me, not just on this band, but on heavier rock music. You know, I grew up in the 70s and came of age in the 80s. So the rock music that I was listening to, and some of it was on the heavier side, you know, Van Halen, certainly, and some Zeppelin I liked and and other stuff like that. Thin Lizzy, my mom really liked Thin Lizzy, and I liked some of the songs I heard too. But a lot of the, and I guess I should throw Cheap Trick in there too. They definitely had a heavier, particularly that first Cheap Trick record is pretty heavy. But also a lot of the other rock music I liked was more like New Wave. And, you know, I really loved Blondie and I liked Devo and I liked, you know, bands like that. Elvis Costello. So Time's Up, when I first heard it in 1990, I was 21 in my senior year of college. And yeah, it just, the the song, the title track, Time's Up, kind of knocked me on my butt, you know? It was so heavy and aggressive and fast, and it just, it was just cool. And, and I didn't realize that that was kind of the type of music I needed. You know, I needed something, I think, a little angrier and passionate and that song and the rest of the record and then seeing, hearing them live, you know, going and seeing them and having that experience, I think really set me off on a path towards different kinds of music sonically, kind of heavier, harder rock music. And then also just lyrically, the stuff that they were talking about. And, you know, they were political, obviously, from the first record, but the stuff that they were talking about in Time's Up, particularly the song Pride, really, really spoke to me personally because I grew up loving rock, but I just didn't have all the information I needed. You know, I didn't I didn't have long conversations with my mom about the Black origins of rock. For whatever reason, we just didn't have those conversations. She exposed me to Jimi Hendrix. I knew he was Black, you know. She liked Garland Jeffries. She liked Thin Lizzy, which had Phil Linet in it. Black person, you know, she would talk about love. She would talk about Black people who are in rock, but we never had the conversation that, hey, this is your music. So I just didn't know that. So that song, Pride, Don't Ask Me Why I Play This Music, because it's my culture, so naturally I use it. That was huge for me. That just that just changed a lot in my brain. <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it actually inspired me, like Public Enemy for you was, you know, a vehicle towards thinking differently and engaging the world differently. Living Color was that for me. And this record in particular was that for me. And you talk about your mom and in your family kind of growing up in Brooklyn and, you know, needing that that angrier song at that moment. Like, I'm, I'm curious about that because I pictured, you know, when you talk about going to a Van Halen show, going to a Cheap Trick show, you know, in, in New York in the 80s is not the New York of today, right? So these these things might seem, to the person reading it, not 
kind of knowing the the culture of New York at the time, these were huge things, right? So when um, when I read that in the book, I can imagine what that was like, right? Because, you know, paint the picture, there are places in, in Brooklyn and in New York in the 80s, as a Black person, you did not go, right? And you, and you knew where those places were, you know? And, you know, Madison Square Gardens in Midtown, you know, a lot of these clubs and venues are like in, you know, the well-traveled places of the city. But the audience that was there tells you whether or not you're... <laughs> You're welcome, you know? And, you know, I don't know if it's, as someone who's often, like yourself, been one of a few Black people in music, in different music environments, I always wonder, like, is it me or is it them or is it a combination? Do you know what I mean by that? And, like, is it me thinking I don't belong or is it them saying that I don't belong? I've never really had any beef at a show, right? Like it's it's never really happened. And strangely enough, in a lot of hip hops, I remember I went to see MOP and like Wu Tang. This is early in the 90s. And there's more white people there than there were black people there. <laughs> like ironically. Like white people never have problems like crashing the black show. <laughs> um so I'm I'm curious about what it was like for you to be in those environments, particularly with your with your mom. Because as you said, she was supportive of of this in a way that I could not picture my parents going to going with me to any show. <laughs> <laughs> Much less shows where there are no black people. Yeah. I mean, and you said a lot there, and and all of that is what I remember. And yeah, so the New York, the Brooklyn, I'm going to throw Brooklyn in there because when I was growing up, Brooklyn was not the city, right? When I was growing up, you would go to the city, which was Manhattan. (laughs) I still say that. I'm going to the city. Going to the city, right? No, I mean, and I would, I can't, and I would imagine there's a whole generation of people and young kids who probably maybe grew up in Brooklyn, you know, who now don't say that because Brooklyn is probably more happening, right, than Manhattan is now, which is also wild when I go back. I'm like, what is this Brooklyn? But anyway, um, yeah, in that time period, it was, um, interestingly, New York was a place that was a bit of a, I guess, a, a melting pot in terms of like musical styles at the time. You know, you had disco, right, the epicenter of that, and you had punk, right, and you had hip-hop, and you had all these different things going on, but it couldn't have been more segregated, right? Like, New York was so segregated. And I'm sure it still is in a lot of ways. I don't, I haven't lived there in a really long time. It's segregated like a motherfucker. Yeah, it's segregated. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I haven't lived in New York since 2001. So, I mean, I visit frequently because I have family there still, but, and, and I married somebody from New Jersey. So, but I don't live there. But yeah, it, it was very segregated at that time for sure. And rock in the 70s and 80s was absolutely viewed as white by, I think, everybody, more or less. And the audiences reflected that. And it was weird. You know, it was really, it was weird for me. And I, and I don't know, I don't know what my mom was thinking. I think my mom, my mom was made of different stuff <laughs> than I was. I mean, she just didn't give a shit. Like she really, she was just that kind of a person in general, which I so respected and respect. My mom's not alive anymore. And, but so I don't know, I can't, I can probably imagine my mom not even thinking twice about it because she was doing that. She was doing that, you know, in the sixties, 
Like she was doing that. She was going to shows by herself. She would tell me about going to the Fillmore East a lot when she was young. And she had this whole period when she was 19 where she would just go dancing like every weekend by herself. That's what she did. So I don't think my mom was thinking about it, but, but I was, you know, I was just this little person, but I was, I don't know why I was thinking about it, but I really was. And I, and I just wanted to see some, like one person who looked like me, who was like rocking out. I mean, I saw people working there, but you know, at both my first and second concerts, the first one was at Radio City Music Hall, which was like a theater, maybe holds about 5,000 people or so. The second was MSG, which of course is like an arena. So that's like more like 18,000 people. And I just remember looking around in both spaces and just not seeing any Black people in the crowd who were rocking out to, to Cheap Trick or Van Halen. And yeah, that felt, that felt uncomfortable. And, you know, and as you said, I was a little kid, right? And I was with my mom. We were probably pretty harmless looking. Nobody said a word to us, you know, and I don't remember anyone glaring at me. Did, did people glance our way? Probably. You know, I'm sure people looked at us because we probably looked a little bit <laughs> different, you know, from what they were used to seeing, but nobody did anything. But I felt really just self-conscious because I just felt like kind of alone in that audience, you know, as a Black person. And it really wasn't until later, because I, you know, I continue going to shows throughout my whole life. I still go to rock shows to this day. And it wasn't really until later, much later, and I'm thinking about one show in particular and I went to see Soundgarden. Uh, in Detroit here. Mm -hmm. And um, when somebody was just like, you don't look like a Soundgarden fan. I was like, really? And yeah. then I'm, I'm, I'm old now. So I'm just like, well, why do you, what makes you say that? <laughs> you know? yeah. What is it about me that makes you say that? So yeah, it took a while for some, for people to really act weird, but yeah, absolutely. But I was always worried about it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's the reason, I mean, I get the same looks and questions. I, I have like an Iron Maiden t-shirt that I wear sometimes and, you know, a, a, a band I've liked since high school, you know, and, you know, I was out at a national park and these guys were like, oh, is that fashion or do you like the band? And I'm like, motherfucker, I wouldn't wear, <laughs> I wouldn't wear a shirt for a band I don't like, right? Yeah, like, right. <laughs> you know, like I don't do, I don't do music as fashion, <laughs> right? So it's just it's just funny that you that you get that, which is to your point why I think one of the many reasons why the band is so important and their music is so important because you can, if you're looking to distill a conversation around um, music and race and rock, you can do it all within <laughs> Living Color, right? Like they they run the the gamut. Because you you and you and you do this so well in the book that you reflect on the the reception from not only white slash mainstream audiences but the reception from black audiences, right? And what that meant. And I was I was really like interested in that in that sort of um, dichotomy in how the band is trying to find a way to fit in 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 places, you know. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is a band that in 1988, you know, the mid mid to late 80s when they were out there and first beginning to emerge. I mean, this is a band that really was developing in a context where rock, it had been agreed upon by everybody, more or less, that that rock, you know, was the purview of white folks, white people. And, you know, the music historian side of me, you know, always likes to kind of have a quick conversation in these spaces about genre. And of course, you know, genre is something that maybe not so much now. I think genre categories have been 
have become a little less heavily policed because of the way we consume music now and, you know, and people make playlists and that kind of thing of all different kinds of music. But um, genres still exist. But, you know, at this time, genre was really, really important, even though it was really a fiction. You know, this is, you know, you know, genres were created, right, as marketing categories, right? It wasn't so much about how the music sounded or even the racial makeup of the people playing the music or the realities, I should say, of the racial makeup of people playing the music or playing together or apart. But it was really about marketing categories. So if you had a song that could perhaps sound the same, whether it's black folks playing it or white folks playing it at the beginning of the 20th century. You know, if it were, if it was black folks playing it, it would be called a blues, right? And it would be put on a race label. And if it was white folks playing it, it'd be called country or hillbilly or whatever, and be put on the hillbilly label, right? And this was done on purpose in order to sell records and, you know, and, and specifically meet a target audience. And these genre categories continued through the 20th century, right? And, you know, similar things happen with rhythm and blues, which if you listen to Shake, Rattle and Roll, right? Big Joe Turner's Shake, Rattle and Roll, that's a rock and roll song, clearly, you know, but it's rhythm and blues. And, you know, something that sounds the exact same will be categorized as rock and roll, right? And then you've got the same thing happen with funk and rock, right? You had all these, Marine Man and other folks have talked about this, you had all these, you know, Black musicians, artists, who were sonically playing music that if you closed your eyes, sounded like rock, rock guitar, but they would be categorized as funk. You know, Parliament Funkadelic, it happened with them, it happened with LaBelle. Um, LaBelle wanted to be a rock band, like that was what they set out to be. And then if it's, and if it was white folks, it would then be rock. So, you know, so you have these categories that are artificial, that have been, you know, long, long entrenched, long believed narratives that are fictional, but they're, but really good <laughs> stories that people bought and still, I think, to a degree buy. And so Living Color was kind of coming around when people really believed, I think, that narrative being really, really successful, not just white folks believing it, but Black folks believing it and viewing this music as white and the sounds that they're hearing as white. And, you know, so they were encountering resistance from Black people who didn't understand why they were wasting their time with this music. White people who just didn't understand, you know, were having some sort of, you know, confusion about the way the band looked yeah. and the sounds that were coming out of their instruments. And of course, rock radio and MTV and the media, the print media, all of it was not set up for a Black rock band to come along. And so they had a lot of kind of an uphill battle. Mick Jagger producing their demo and shopping it around and helping them, that helped. But it, but even that was not like an instant open up the door, you know, golden ticket because things were really rough. <laughs> you know, they, they, they single-handedly desegregated rock radio. I mean, Living Color did that, which is why this band is so important. Yeah. And it's, it's, um, it's just so crazy when we have these conversations about categories and because it's, it's very frustrating when you're trying to describe music. Like I think casual music people, it might be a little easier because, you know, they're fine with the categories as they stand. Right. But when, when you start to get into different kinds of music, I'm often puzzled, like, is it the sound? Is it the instruments? Like, what is it that is making something go 
from one place to another. Because I think about, and you and you detail this excellently in the book when you talk about each um, of the members, how they grew up, their influences, the music they listened to, the areas that they lived in, right? You know, very New York band, right? And as I was reading that and, and you're weaving your story into it, I'm hearing echoes of my own story, right? Of how I came to like different music. Some of it was, it was well, all of it was kind of accidental, right? It's not like I was turning on the radio at six, right? So I, I kind of listened to what was in the house. I listened to what was coming from the sidewalks, you know, the streets, the radios when I went outside. And that's why I'm often so puzzled by these conversations because I feel like, yes, the categories are true, but then when I think about listening to music, even among like my friends, that we didn't believe in the category. So I'm curious if I'm, I don't know this, like you would be someone obviously far more studied in this than myself, but I wonder how much of that is just growing up in New York where me and my friends still talk about like old Kiss FM used to play like, yes, it was an R&B station, but they played quite a bit of music from quote unquote white artists, right? So there are all these like white artists that me and my friends grew up liking, right? Hall and Oates, Phil Collins, right? Like, you know, the Doobie Brothers. I mean, the Doobie Brothers were on, were on what's happening, right? So it's like you kind of got introduced to music that wasn't I don't know. I don't. I hate using black music, white music, but you know what I mean. It wasn't like the stereotypical R and B music through all these different mediums. And then you cited this also in the book when Run DMC did Rockbox, right? So even before they had Walk This Way, which saved Aerosmith's career, they had Rockbox with literal guitar in it. Even Beat It had Eddie Van Halen on it, right? So I'm I'm wondering how much we were primed. <laughs> <laughs> for for rock without knowing it in all these different mediums and and ways. So I'm, I'm curious your your thoughts on kind of dissecting category a little bit more because I find it so frustrating. Yeah, no, it is frustrating. So I think, and that's kind of what I was saying earlier, beginning to say earlier, that New York in particular, and I'm sure there are other places, but I grew up in New York, so I, you know that's what I know best. But New York was a place where there was where were so many different musical scenes happening all around the same time that were really important from a kind of like a musical history perspective, you know. And I think there, there, you know, there was a lot of crossover going on. You know, I mean, obviously Blondie is a band that's like, you know, Exhibit A, you know, like, you know, Blondie was a band that was soaking up all of those different kind of sounds in New York, you know, disco and punk and hip hop and all of it, you know. Some, some, some reggae in there. Some reggae in there, right. (laughs) And, you know, so they, so that was a, I think a, you know, an, an example of just kind of what New York was like at that time and continued to be like. And so when I was growing up, yeah, New York, like rock was paramount. I didn't just live with my mom. I also lived with my grandmother. And then I had uncles who would kind of come in and out and an aunt. And so I did hear different kinds of music, but primarily what I was listening to, because my mom was the one who would put music on the stereo and crank it up loud, was rock music. But she also would bring home disco. So there was some disco in the house too, because it was kind of unavoidable at that time yeah. period. You know, like you, you know, so Chic and Donna Summer and 
the Ring My Bell song, whoever, whoever, you know, that was just, I mean, oh my gosh. So, you know. I remember many house parties hearing like, push, push into bush. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. I was like, somehow I knew that was not something I, sh- <laughs> I should I should have been listening to. <laughs> I should be repeating. Right. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. Right. No. And and like Evelyn Champagne King's Shame. Like I remember that song. Yeah. That my I think my uncle liked. So so anyway, there was like a lot of music. And and again, yeah, the folks in Living Color were growing up, all of them, with like all these different musics in their house. And then yes, there was always that kind of interest, right? Like like again. Black, like rock is, like black people were the the creators of rock, right? And then there was a continued interest that black artists had in rock. So that's why you do get like Eddie Van Halen playing on Beat It. You know, I mean, that's a prime example. It's a great example. But yet people still, like I think Beat It is a really great example, still had trouble categorizing that particular song, let's say with serious heavy rock guitar by one Eddie Van Halen as a rock song, right? Or Prince, for instance. Like, oh my gosh, drives me crazy when I think about Prince. And because Prince's first record has a song on there, Bambi. If you listen to Bambi, that's not a rock song. It's a rock song. I don't, spoiler alert, it's a rock song, you know? And so much of what Prince was doing was rock. And I, and I, I see Prince as, among other things, a rock artist. But he, despite what we could hear, I think because of his body and because of his band's general makeup, I think people just couldn't connect that and put him in a either a pop category, mostly a pop category. And, you know, I kind of laugh, but I'm also kind of sad when periodically, you know, his um, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you know, the George Harrison induction ceremony where he plays while my guitar gently weeps that incredible performance and that comes up every once in a while on the internet and the internet's surprised all over again like you know like oh my god prince was an amazing guitarist i would argue the best guitarist yeah right (laughs) oh my god an amazing oh and he could really rock like prince was rocking from like his first record (laughs) what i mean what what's let's go crazy what's what's that what's going on on that song yeah (laughs) and and I think that's what's that's why I love this band because it gives us an opportunity, again, like I said, to challenge. You know, like I, I this comes up every time. Like you mentioned, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to me, and every time they announce like who's in a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, because now they're pushing to make the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame more diverse, which means bringing in different types of artists. And I'm often left with this conversation: like, why is rock the barometer? for like the stamp of music worth, right? In the sense that, you know, if Missy Elliott wants to go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, go ahead, Missy, right? Like, that's cool. But I'm like, Missy Elliott is not a rock and roll artist, right? Jay-Z is not, he's a rapper, right? Biggie's a rapper. Like, it's okay for those things to be what they are. And, I, you know, I, it frustrates me because it's like, it almost feels like, okay, if rock and roll says it's good, then it's good. As opposed to us living, not, I mean, I'm not arguing for the classifications to remain static, but just that I feel like as long as rock has that power, it also has like an internal power to define what it is and isn't in a more nefarious way. And we see that with a band like Living Color, you know, so I'm curious your your thoughts on 
rock eminence, <laughs> for lack of a better word. No, that's great. And of course, you know, we have that term for it, which some people like and some people don't, but rockism or rockist or that kind of thing, that idea of like, you know, and I think people use that in different ways and there have been different people who've written about it. But, you know, this idea of it's not just like loving rock over other things, although that can be part of it, but like rock being the default Right. And so what's good or what isn't good or the ways in which artists create or disseminate their music or the ways in which artists appear or express their music is seen through the lens of rock. You know, so a certain kind of sincerity or authenticity or honesty or a certain kind of, you know, um, songwriting, a certain kind of, yeah, being somebody who writes your own songs and having like the lone songwriter maybe two people or that kind of thing. You know, these things that have been celebrated as hallmarks of rock gets kind of conflict, not conflated, but gets kind of um, used to tackle and engage other kinds of music. And that's the main barometer of what's good or what isn't. So yeah, so rockism, that's a thing for sure. And the rock hall, you know, certainly is part of that. I do think, yeah, the rock hall is absolutely trying to work on some of the issues, you know, the the lack of women, the lack of black artists in general, although I think there's there's been a, a lot of um growth in that area. But yeah, I think that rock continues even though it's not, you know, it's interesting we're talking about a music that's no longer mainstream. You know, I mean we're talking about a music that's no longer on the charts and commercially viable in the way that it once was. I mean, my whole life, I was talking about this to someone else the other day. It is a little freaky, like my entire existence until maybe 20, I don't know, 12, 13, rock was the dominant, you know, music in this yeah. country. You know, it was the dominant, and maybe even from a transatlantic perspective, like in England too, you know, it was like, you know, I can't really speak to that with authority, but it was the dominant. Rock was the thing that was on the charts. Rock was the thing that really everything was definitely compared to or seen through that lens. You know, the whole backlash against disco, besides being racist and homophobic, was also about, you know, rock's shadow. You know, like yeah. it's it's everything rock isn't, you know, in people's minds. So we're not living in that time anymore. But I think you're right where at least for the boomer and probably Gen Xers, I'm a Gen Xer, and maybe a few Gen Xers kids, because you'll see them on the internet kind of saying, this is real music. Why don't we have real music anymore? Yeah. I do think that rock <laughs> still does occupy that space. It's really interesting. Absolutely. Because they have a really good marketing machine. Like I tell people all the time, if you go to the bookstore, magazine store, whatever, right? Like this is one of my examples. And you go to the magazine rack, you will see like magazine covers devoted to Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, The Beatles, like their current acts. Like you pick up a copy of Mojo or Guitar Player. It's like they're on the cover all the time as if they released the album last week. And I'm like, yo, The Beatles are long gone, right? Like, and I love The Beatles. I love all that music, but it's amazing how they have managed to create an environment where there's a certain freshness that keeps getting regurgitated to people in a way that one of my frustrations have been with hip hop is that we don't have that same thing, right? Like I'm not going in and seeing a cover of Right On Magazine 
to just think that Write On Magazine still exists anymore, I'm dating <laughs> myself, but let's pretend <laughs> Write On Magazine existed, right? <laughs> I'm not going to go see a cover with like Houdini, the Fat Boys, and Run DMC talking about like, oh, remember Fresh Fest? From like 87, wasn't that amazing, right? Like that's done. Or the Rock the Bells tour. But I could go to the magazine store. I guarantee I could walk to Barnes & Noble today and find something talking about Woodstock. (laughs) Like I don't have to go into archives. I can literally go and find something current talking about Woodstock or like Monterey or something like that that happened in the 60s. Isle Isle of Man. It'll be like, what are you talking about? Right. No, you're totally right. It's crazy how like rock is that thing. And then you have a band like Living Color that has to wrestle within these identities. Right. Because like when I talk about Time's Up, right, I want to spend the remaining of the time on that. You know, when I got on Howard's campus, it was August of 1990, the same month that album came out. And one of the things I was like, oh man, like I like all this different music. Like I love hip hop, R&B too, but I also like all this other shit, right? Now I'm on this black campus. What the fuck? People are going to think I'm a weirdo. Happy to report nobody thought that shit, right? It's my first time realizing that, hey, I'm not as weird, quote unquote, as I thought. So I, I credit Howard to knocking out this false notion of black exceptionalism based on the music, right? Because I found kids who like the same shit. Or like different stuff. And, and we kind of riffed off that. But when I got Time's Up, I loved Vivid. I remain loving Vivid, as I said at the beginning. But it's almost like Time's Up felt to me like an even blacker record, you know, in quotes. Not that they weren't black during Vivid, but it felt more <laughs> politically and culturally black than Vivid, even though it was through the lens of rock music, right? So I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on why 16 going on 17-year-old me would have had that revelation. <laughs> yeah, no, that's really interesting. I mean, you know, that's certainly how Vernon views the record. You know, he talked about it being the blackest record that Living Color made. And from my perspective, I think that what might make it feel that way. You know, it's not so much the subject matter because they were already talking about, you know, racism and classism and police brutality and microaggressions and gentrification on the first record. You know, they were talking about all those things and they continue talking about those things on this record. But I think, you know, their collaborations, you know, there's so many collaborations on this, on Time's Up then I think are really, you know, there's so many things that make this record interesting sonically, but I think that's one of the things is just these collaborations. So having Little Richard on there in a song called Elvis is Dead and the song, you know, as Vernon talks about in the book, it's not meant to be dissing Elvis as, as, a, as an artist who obviously was important and had great impact and, and had great talent, but just really the song was about kind of delusional Elvis fans, you know, and this notion that he's alive, right? He's alive somewhere. Kind of like delusional, I don't know, Jim Morrison fans. Um, Although that might be dating myself. But anyway, um, (laughs) but the song, you know, to have a song like that, where there is this ongoing conversation about rock music. This is a band who very much in the late 80s, early 90s, was about reclaiming rock's blackness, So they write this song about Elvis, who many people see as the king of rock and roll, probably to this day, and to have Little Richard on there, who is a true architect of rock and roll, 
Right. And then to have Mick Jagger, right? Because there's a breakdown where different people in the band are saying, and other people outside of the band, by the way, it's a really interesting song, are saying Elvis is dead. Elvis is dead. Mick Jagger's one of the Elvis is dead voices. And so to have Mick Jagger on there, I always thought that was like a really clever kind of sly thing. Somebody who, you know, is seen as a cultural appropriator. He's a, he's a, I think, a symbol for that, although I think it's a little more complicated than that um, in the case of the Stones. And then he's somebody who absolutely, unquestionably has benefited, right, from appropriation, right, has benefited oh, yeah. from racism, right, has benefited, like he's a benefited from Black rock and rollers and Black blues people. Um, so to have him on there saying Elvis is dead and have little Richard on there with his rap in the middle, you know, I think that was like a real kind of like, okay, we're going to not just tell you that rock is Black, but now we're going to demonstrate it. We're going to show you. We're going to let you hear it. There's a, a, a video for that. And then there's also, they played it on Arsenio Hall's show, right? And little Richard actually performed, which is great. So I think that's one of those moments that feels really black on that record. But then also like having like Queen Latifah on there and Dougie Fresh on there and Maceo Parker on there, which is really, I think, also showing the audience. I don't know if the audience, the big mainstream audience is quite ready for it, but showing the audience all of the ways in which all of those musics are part of this canon of rock. And they were so interested in, I think, expanding ideas about what rock is, while also obviously sounding and, and being rock, but also, you know, playing around with these categories throughout the record, but sometimes even in the same song. And, you know, I think that's what makes this record really special. And I also do think that they probably got punished a little bit for that, for doing that kind of stuff, for... Whereas, you know, white rockers, you know, have long, like we talked about Blondie a moment ago, right? Um, have been celebrated for doing those kinds of things. I think Living Color always had that thing hanging over them of, are they legitimately rock? You know, Muzz Gillings talked about it in the book, you know, when writers, when the media would talk about them as, categorize them as, you know, funky rock or funk rock, that it always yeah. felt from his perspective that it was like a way of othering them, you know, and undermining their legitimacy as rockers. Absolutely. And it, it's funny you bring up the Elvis's dad because I'm kind of in that like fuck Elvis camp, right? Like I'm just tired of Elvis and, you know, <laughs> okay. and, I'm, and I'm not even thinking about it musically because to be honest, ever since I was a kid, I don't even know if this is true, right? Like, do you know, hear the, these old stories, <laughs> but growing up, there's this story that Elvis was like, black people can only shine his shoes and buy his rights, right? So yeah, probably didn't say that, right? But Locked in my head since I was a kid. So I'm kind of on that fuck Elvis camp, right? <laughs> and getting away from even that portion of it. Also, it's just the, I get the sentiment of that song because it's this, just, it's too much. All right. Like this dude is not the king of rock and roll. It's just so sick of it that by the time you can't even get to the music, at least for me. Right. Like other black people might have their own experiences with Elvis. But for me, <laughs> my grandmother loved Elvis. <laughs> yeah. My, I have an aunt who loved Elvis because but you know what was interesting? I think like that generation right before ours, they came because I'm thinking about my aunt in particular. Right. Like she came to Elvis through the movies, not really the music. So Elvis goes to Hawaii. Elvis does this. Elvis does that. Like when they would go and, and you know, growing up in the West Indies. So when they had a chance to go to a movie, it was an Elvis movie. Right. And so she's like, oh, I love Elvis. The, the movies were great. And I was like, ugh. 
Like this dude's the worst, right? <laughs> but it's it's always right. that, right? So when I when I heard Elvis's dad, I linked it to me to like fight the power. Public enemies fight the power, right? It was another shot at the Elvis camp, <laughs> right? Which again, 16, 17 year old me was like, yeah, <laughs> screw that dude. You know, but I'm I'm glad you brought up the guests, the guests that were on the record, um, from Little Richard to Maceo Parker. Again, at that time, the Queen Latifah and Dougie Fresh meant more to me than Maceo Parker and Little Richard did, right? Because for me, it was like, oh, hip hop cats are on this. So for those who don't want to fuck with it, look, I can prove it to you, right? So Queen Latifah and Dougie Fresh gave me the proof, quote unquote, that I felt I needed to those who might push back against the record, if that makes sense, right? Like, it's like, ah, see, you can't not like this because look, Queen Latifah is on this and she just did Ladies First, right? So that's what it was like. The whole record had like these, these vibes and energy that felt very, very much a part of the same things that was happening in hip hop, right? You had like some house influences in there. Every hip hop album had to have a house song, at least one, right? Like, you know, there was this pushback against not being taught our history, right? Like history lesson, right? Pride, like all these things that were such a part of whether you want to call it Afrocentrism of the late 80s, early 90s, seemed deeply embedded in this record, right? And I'm curious in in your mind, the long tail and legacy of that, right? Like how does the band like sort of live with such, having created such an incredible moment (laughs) In, in short, right? Culturally and musically. Yeah, I mean, this is a band who I feel I feel very strongly was a band that was rooted in its time, of its time. I mean, if you listen to songs on there, you know, like um, the one with Latifah about safe sex, and I don't know why I'm blanking. Oh, Undercover of Darkness. Undercover of Darkness, there we go. <laughs> so if you listen to Undercover of Darkness, you know, that's a song that Safe sex remains important today, but certainly in that moment, you know, where there was a lot of fear around HIV and AIDS. That shit was the end. So you thought, right? Until Magic Johnson. Yeah, at that time. (laughs) Right. At that time, it was, there was a lot of, there was a lot of fear. And I came of age, you know, in that time and I had a lot of fear, you know, so that was very much a song of its time. But this is also a band who saw the future. And even the stuff that was of its time remains extremely relevant now, for better or for worse, and mostly for worse. (laughs) So yeah, this is a band, this is a song, this is a band and an album that really, really, if you listen to it, I think now it sounds fresh. It sounds like it could have been made, you know, last week when you're hearing it, but also just, again, the subject matter, whether it's this whole thing about, you know, Time's Up, right? 1990. It's a hardcore song about the environment, right? And the environmental crisis, which, you know, wasn't really happening at that time. You know, there weren't really hardcore songs about the environment in 1990. So that's... Persistent and regular. (laughs) And then information overload, right? Which is really kind of talking about the computer age, right? And like really kind of seeing into the future and predicting how chaotic it's going to be. That's amazing. You know, and then, of course, the, the stuff that they were always talking about, gentrification only got worse, 
particularly in New York, police brutality. I don't need to say anything else. Racism, obviously, not going anywhere. <laughs> you know, persistent and regular, right? I mean, it is incredible. But then also on this record, the universal stuff that's on there, you know, talking about love and death and grief and Solace of You is about, you know, Corey's loss of his dad right before the band really blew up. And, you know, this is the life, of course, being the song that's about, you know, embracing the life you you, you get. You know, we don't we don't get to choose. Um, we can make choices within our path. But this idea like wanting to be a new whole brand new person, you know, with a whole brand new set of circumstances, sure, to some degree, but, you know, we also have to kind of accept some of the things that, that we, that we do have. All of these things, I think, just speak to this band being, again, of their time, timeless, future-oriented, all of it, all at once, which is incredible. So, you know, I think the band recognizes, and this is, you know, I spend time on this in the book, the band recognizes what an achievement this record is. And I think that in the moment, critics also recognized what an achievement this is. Vivid was really well received critically and, of course, commercially. Time's Up was not as well received commercially, but I think more well received critically, even more kind of universally, you know, from what I could find. But I think the real question is kind of, you know, with all of that and just, I think, greatness of this record, you know, what kind of happened in terms of the commercial life, you know, like what, what was it that kind of didn't translate to a mainstream audience commercially? But I think everybody recognizes the, that this is, this is a great record. Oh yeah. And, you know, it's, it sounds cliche to say, oh, they were ahead of their time and whatever. Cause it's like you said, it is both, right? They're very much rooted in the in their time but yet ahead of their time at the same time right um or, or in the same moment so when i think about a song like the last two songs on the record right you mentioned both of them already but just to go a little deeper into them you know solace of you has like also like sort of like the more african rhythms and stuff and which was just amazing in and of itself but then I think about, you know, Graceland was a record that had been released, like, I guess, two years before Paul Simon's Graceland. Talking Heads had been doing things like that since the 70s and into the 80s. And, and obviously, they also covered Talking Heads on Vivid, which I didn't know was a cover until later. And so, again, it seems like, you know, they're doing something that, like, white audiences get lauded for, but they just do, you know? And and so that's an interesting kind of perspective. So I would love your take on on that. And then This Is The Life, which is probably one of my favorite songs generally. And I remember I was listening to it. This might have been like, at the particular moment I was listening to it at this time, I was like, how much of it is rooted in now, right? I was wishing like my niece would listen to the song. Not because she needs it in particular, but because she is younger and I just feel like it's so much a song for this moment because, you know, sound like an old person, but like the internet is filled with people who aren't happy with their life to me, right? Like this constant need for the dopamine of likes and attention and all the rest of it is so rooted in this moment. But when I listen to the song, 
released in 1990, it sounds like it could be talking about today. You know, people never being satisfied, you know. So I want to get your take on on those two in particular. Yeah, right. And I, you know, so I agree, you know, Solace of You having these sounds that someone could listen to and say, that's not rock, you know. And then all of the as you know, as I talked about before, those guest appearances, you know, the 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 tag team partners with Dougie Fresh and Corey Glover kind of playing around with each other. Yeah, those are things that for a long time, many, many, many white rockers, right, were allowed to kind of do and have these sound. I mean, no one ever was going to say Paul Simon wasn't in the rock category. You know, he was always going to be there, no matter what kind of music he made, right? Um, Living Color, definitely, I think, as I said before, we're, we're punished a bit for doing, making these kinds of quote-unquote transgressive moves between genres within a rock record. In terms of that last song, yeah, I that's my favorite song in the record. It's one of my favorite songs in life as well. It does speak to me because it's funny. I mean, I didn't grow up anywhere near <laughs> the development of the of the. I shouldn't say the development of the internet. I know the internet existed in some form or whatever for a long time, but the actual mainstreaming of the internet, that was, I didn't know, you know, that was not really um, a thing until later in the nineties. And, but I was, I was somebody who really needed to hear that lesson. Like I needed to hear that, you know, long before selfies and likes and Twitter followers, you know, I needed to, I needed to hear that, that message of accepting my life, loving the life that I have. And, you know, I was always going to be a striver and somebody with ambition. You know, that's just kind of how I'm made. But I needed to hear that no matter what all of that is, you're going to still have to learn how to appreciate what you have at some point. (laughs) You know, at some point, you're going to have to learn this lesson to appreciate what you have or else you're just going to be a really miserable person, (laughs) you know. And that's not an easy lesson. It, it hasn't been for me. I can't speak for other people, but that I, I feel like that song, Vernon was in my head somehow, knew my life. Yeah, <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Like, needed to needed me to know this important information. And I feel like I'm still, I still have to remind myself to be happy with what I have and count my blessings and what I do have, because there's still all this stuff I want, you know? And I'm not 21 anymore. Yeah, yeah, I'm far from 21. <laughs> so, um, 21 is distant in the, in the rearview mirror. So, I think it's just a really important song. I think it, I think it is a song, and it does. And as I think you're right, like it does kind of speak to where we are now. And I think it still offers good lessons for young folks. Yeah, absolutely. And it's and it's one that has like perspective, right? Because it's it's also not inviting you to just settle for whatever your circumstances are, right? But it also plays with this notion, like I, I say this in meetings all the time, like everybody's the star of their own movie, right? When you when you walk into a pitch, everybody's the star, right? You got to respond to that, to that energy, right? And so sometimes when I move in, in spaces where people are irritating the fuck out of me, I got to remember that, right? <laughs> Like everybody's motivated by something different. And I don't know what's going on in their life at that moment in the same way that they don't know what's going on in mine. And I was walking down the street yesterday. I was in down, down Brooklyn 
kind of Dumbo, which I hate. Dumbo's a terrible neighborhood. Um, but um, um, to the extent that you can call it a neighborhood and not just a tourist attraction filled with construction. But um, my Dumbo hate aside, I actually left Dumbo and was in Brooklyn Heights and I was walking by this church and I'm not a religious person, but it had a, a sign up and it said, life is cruel, so be kind, right? And it, and it made me think about the last stanza of the song in anticipation of our conversation, right? And I was like, oh, wow, like that's, that's one of the best lines to me, you know, to try to be more kind, you know, it's a powerful lesson. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, absolutely. And then also the part in there, you know, where it's talking about just the inevitability that at some point your loved ones are going to leave. You know, if you're if you're if you're lucky enough, right, to live long enough, you're going to lose people. And that's just part of life. And and Vernon also I I, I talked to him and it didn't make it into the book, but at, at some point we were talking about this song and you know, and he was saying that this is a song that is there and continues to be there. And the way he put it was so beautiful, and I don't think I can I can do it justice. But more or less, he was saying that the song "This Is a Life" was there, you know, when he was, you know, on the rise. It was there when the Grand Parade moved on. You know, it was there when Greg Tate left. It was there when the band, you know, was loving each other. When the band wasn't loving each other, this is a song that I think speaks to all of those things that can happen in a life. And then just finding a way to still love your life and to appreciate your life. It's it's a it's a powerful, powerful metaphor. And you know, and it's and it's a hard song, you know, like the guitar solo before the the last the last stanzas of the song and you know, Corey's um, vocals, you can hear all of that wailing. And you know, I, I always feel like there's moments when bands go into a studio and they have to know. <laughs> <laughs> that they created something special. Sometimes you hear where they're like, eh, we didn't know, but I'm like, motherfucker, you do that shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think they did know. I think they did know this was a good record. Yeah. A great record. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I, I mean, we can, we can talk about this record forever. Um, <laughs> more than likely, I have so many more notes and I didn't even get into a whole bunch of stuff. But, oh, I will ask this one other question, right? It's, it's um, because I do think it's important. Like, why does there only have to be one, right? Like, I feel like in this moment in particular, you know, once we had Living Color, they were like, yeah, we're good on this, <laughs> right? Like, you know, like we don't need any more <laughs> Black rock bands, we don't need to push that agenda. We don't need to play more of the music. And then, you know, later, about a eh, five, six years later, obviously Rage comes out. And, you know, I don't even know how much folks would consider Rage a black band, right? Despite the members, <laughs> you know. And I just saw Rage this past summer at Madison Square Garden, a band I thought I would never see. I was with two of my boys, and and I still think about that show. Like, on a weekly basis, I flash back to... <laughs> to that ratio. I got to see them at a Lollapalooza early on, which was great. See, I missed that, right? And see, because Lollapalooza, I wouldn't have fucked with Lollapalooza, right? Like, see, you're braver than me. Me in those days, nah. Even though I liked the music and the bands, because I was at my most blackety-black, confrontational black. <laughs> and me and that Lollapalooza crew would not have, would not have meshed. 
right? So that was a hard pass for me. So I credit you for being brave, right? But I missed out on seeing Rage at that moment because of shit like that, right? And then I had to see them years later at Master's Square Garden, right? More geriatric. <laughs> um, but we but we held, we held the flame, right? So I'm curious in your mind, then we're going to get to the final segment of the show, The Drop, like why they're, you know, you would think the music business being what it is, that they would have been trying to make 15 more Living Colors, right? Because I saw after Bon Jovi blew and the hair bands blew, they had a shitload of shitty hair bands waiting, just praying for a hit. Winger, <laughs> looking at you, Winger. Winger were terrible. Right? <laughs> terrible. <laughs> Fucking terrible. <laughs> Even Mad Lion that had like some good songs, you know, were not a good band. But they but they just kind of replicate it, right? Let me give you some tight pants, blow out your hair, pretty boy at the front, and then let's see where let's see how many records we could sell on this. They ain't try to do that with Living Color. Gosh, and look at what happened with the with the whole like Seattle sound and all of that stuff. I mean, my gosh, that was really painful. I mean, that was so painful. It drove Pearl Jam like out of <laughs> out of the commercial world. Like Pearl Jam just said, "Fuck this, I'm out." Because there were so many Pearl Jam sound alike bands that it was depressing. So yeah, you're right. That happened, and that that always would. Ha- I don't know. So it didn't happen with Living Color. I think people hoped it would happen, and you know, and there were some people in the media who even brought that up. Why aren't there a million sound-alike living color bands and look-alike, right? To capitalize on the fame and the hype and the visibility. You know, the only thing I can just accredit it to, and it seems so easy, facile, but I don't know, racism? I mean, like, I just really think that it, it just really, I mean, it really is just, okay, we did that. We didn't know it was going to work out. You know, we kind of thought maybe it'd work out. Oh, it worked out. Yay. Okay. We're not trying that again because we don't, it's probably not going to work out again. (laughs) You know? Yeah, we did that. And I just think had Time's Up sold as, had they done, you know, like a Vivid 2 or like another something like Vivid, you know, because I, again, I like Vivid. I think it's a good record, but it's, you know, it's definitely a mainstream rock record. I think it's much more, you know, just like really easy, I think, to consume for people who like metal and hard rock and heavy heavy rock kind of thing, Time's Up is more complicated and challenging. And so I don't know if Time's Up had been different and they'd had another huge hit, maybe that would have made a difference. I'm not really sure, but yeah, yeah no, I think just racism and, and a failure of imagination and just, you know. Funny how those know. two go hand yeah, in hand. Right. And just, okay, <laughs> we did that. We tried that. Okay. It worked a little, but we're done. And so then it has been just one at a time. But even with that, I still think it's important for people to understand what this band did with, again, desegregating rock radio, with being all over MTV, with winning back-to-back Grammys for the first record and the second record, and being nominated for another one for the third, for Stain, for Leave It Alone, and you know, MTV awards and, you know, all of that and press and selling moving units at 19, late 80s, black band, all black band. That is huge. And they did crack the door open. Even if they didn't throw it open, they cracked it open for bands like Rage Against the Machine, for bands like TV on the radio, for bands like Soundgarden, just who weren't all white, you know. And I'll say Algiers, Block Party. yeah. Yeah. And William Duvall, who is, you know, now the lead singer of Alice in Chains, you know, a black man. And that was 
bit controversial. And I think the controversy was inevitable probably for anybody just because Lane Staley did have really a very unique voice and a very strong voice and a very like special voice. I think Lane Staley was incredibly gifted, but race came in there and there were definitely people who were like, huh? But I think that Living Color made William Duvall as the, co- as the new singer for Alice in Chains possible. And Vernon Reed was a mentor to him in his early years. So, you know, Living Color did a lot. So I think it's just important for people to know that and recognize what they did. Did a, did a lot, do a lot. I, I, I love this record. I love the band. And I, I want to thank you so much for, for being on the show. I want to get to the drop. Um, in the time that we have less. And the drop is just an opportunity for us to share anything at all with our, our listeners. So beyond listening to Time's Up and listening to Vivid, that goes without saying, um, my drop is actually a TV show. Um, I don't think I've given this drop before, even though I might have mentioned the show. And if I have given a drop before, that's okay. There's 150-odd episodes, so I'm quite sure it'll be new to somebody. Um, I just rewatched um, The Legend of Korra, which is available on Netflix. And it's a sequel, quote unquote, to The Last Airbender, both animated shows. Controversial, maybe, but I like horror better. <laughs> I think it's the better show. And I rewatching it again, it, it reminded me of how, in many ways, dark the show is, dealing with um, trauma and healing, relationships, just a lot of stuff that you wouldn't expect to see cooked into a, quote unquote, kid's show. So I would highly recommend folks who are want something to kind of dig into for the summer to give The Legend of Korra a twirl. It's on Netflix. That's my drop. Okay. Well, I mentioned her name earlier. I think that folks who are listening to this, and particularly this episode, might be interested in Maureen Mann's book, Black Diamond Queens. I don't know if you've had a chance to read it, but it's awesome. So it's um, Black Diamond Queens, and the uh, subtitle is African American Women and Rock and Roll. And it's Maureen, M-A-H-O-N. And this is a book that does some of the same work we've been talking about. It just came out a couple of years ago. And it does some of the same work we're talking about, just um, reclaiming Rock is Black and looking at women, um, Black women, who don't necessarily always get categorized as Rock, but are absolutely Rock. So, you know, Laverne Baker's in there and Tina Turner's in there. There's a wonderful chapter on Tina Turner. So just... Given the timeliness of all of our thinking of Tina, it's worth it to take a read. It's a great book. I mean, it's a really well-done book. And Maureen Mann is a cultural anthropologist by training who wrote another book called Right to Rock, which is about the Black Rock Coalition and Living Colors in there. Um, Oh, okay. But uh, but this book is great. And yeah, and um, she just has like, I think, a really interesting way of thinking about Black women and thinking about these questions of race and genre and gender. Oh, that's awesome. I'm, I'm definitely going to check it out. That is a great drop, given, I guess, a, a great drop, no matter what we were talking about, but particularly as we're talking about all all of this. Um, Kimberly, I want to thank you so much for, for being on the show with me, for, you know, bringing this book to life, which does such an excellent job talking about Time's Up, talking about living color, and and really doing... That would be enough. But as someone who was also coming of age in these moments, I think you did a wonderful job through your words and theirs of capturing a very particular time in our music and cultural history that was so critically important. So thank you for being on the show and thank you for this book. Thank you so much for all of that. And thank you for having me. 
You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.